Well, good morning. It is great to be with you. And having pastored a church in North Carolina for about 20 years, I'm still amazed that we have a congregation this size when there's six degrees temperature outside and, what, eight or ten inches of snow on the ground. So if you would pardon my frivolity, I want to take a picture of this congregation just so I can... Just so I can put on Facebook that you can have church in the snow. I took some pictures outside, and I'm going to send to my friends down south and say, you can still do this, because I remember as a pastor, if the first flake hit the ground, we were canceling service. So now, it is great to be with you. Some were joking before that you get extra credit for being here today. Um, that's a different way of thinking about church, but as I think about it, you had every excuse not to be here today. No one would have blamed you if you didn't get out of bed. It's so cold. There's, you know, your cars probably had to be cleared out if your driveway was clear. But you wanted to be with the body of Christ. And thank you for making that effort. And may the Lord enrich your lives for coming and being a part of the service. And I know many, or I assume many, I know some, I know my in-laws are watching this online, and many others are probably watching this. And my prayer is for you that that through this time of worship, singing, and the Word of God, God would meet with you in your home through this new technology that we can do. But it is great to be able to gather as the body of Christ. One of the joys of my job is, is to be able to travel to different churches and to see the different ways in which people worship. And in western New York, there are 37 churches that I try to get to once a year. Maybe it's a little, after, a little more than once a year. But um, we, we have all types of churches. We have some small churches. I think our smallest is one, our church on the, the Native American territory. And it's probably 12 to 15 people that gather on Sunday morning faithfully, but in very hostile environment for the gospel. And then our largest is more than 2,000. We have churches that are brand new, um, Resurgence City uh, Church in downtown Buffalo started in September. We have churches that this summer, Fillmore was one of the, celebrated their 175th anniversary, so an older church. We have churches in English, many. We have Swahili, our new Mission of Christ Church in, in, uh, in the west side of Buffalo. We have churches in Chinese. We have all sorts of, of opportunities to gather. And as I see the church, I'm amazed at how, how Christ can, can be revealed or be expressed in so many different type of atmospheres. And I think we are, I think you would be enriched to see that. Many who have been on foreign soil or mission trips can see the church in other atmospheres, other environments can can be enriched by the ways in which people worship. But we also have a challenge. For the church is not known for its ability to get along with each other. And we, we somewhat need to own up to that, that reputation. There is a problem. Jesus prayed, as we read in the scripture that was read, prayed that the church would be one. That we, the people of Christ, would be one. And yet we look for ways to find differences. Maybe within a congregation that there are people who say, well, they're not like me. Or they don't agree with me on this point. And there's, there's internal differences. Or maybe between this church and the church down the street. Or the church at your hometown. We look for those differences. And we 
we allow ourselves to be divided. And churches can, can argue and fight over silly things. As Tom Rainer's a pastor who writes uh, blogs quite often. He wrote an, a blog, a complete blog on the silly things that churches fight over. And some of them were, if they weren't true, it would be funny. Um, but two churches, he reported, had fights over the type of coffee that they served in the foyer. They had switched from a more traditional Folgers blend to a stronger blend. And one of them actually had families that left the church because they switched the kind of coffee that they attended. There have been fights over the length of the worship leader's beard and uh, whether when you serve communion, if you should have gluten-free bread as an option. There have been fights over that. I read about a church that, that went through a pretty severe church split and some of the church leadership went in trying to figure out why they, this happened. And they went back to some families that had arguments over each other and then some words that were, were expressed in, in, in anger. And it, it, it went back to a potluck dinner that the church had. And one of the ladies had brought a, a congealed salad at this dinner, but she made it with Cool Whip rather than real whipping cream. And that was looked at as, as somehow lesser. And some a comment was made and feelings were hurt and the church split. Now, as I work with different churches, these are extreme, but I've counseled with pastors and here in western New York who deal with similar type of issues that to an outsider, maybe as I come into the church, it, it seems petty. It seems like that, that should not divide us. That shouldn't even have, that shouldn't even be on our radar of splitting the body of Christ. But as the persons involved, those feelings are real. That division is harmful. And people in many of our churches have separated from their church family. Churches have split over seemingly minor issues. This year we are, probably the last couple of years, we've been in some of the most toxic political environment. And unfortunately that has crept into the church. We have been affected through this by social media and it's made it easier to interact with with people only with people that agree with you only with people who would would take your point of view on whatever the issue is and actually i think they're starting to change this but initially facebook and some of these social media were making algorithms so that you only saw the post of those that thought like you thought and that's contributed to our our polarization of our culture and has affected the church. Jesus said he would build his church. We have somehow created churches that we think look like us and think like us and that's, that's sort of what we want, that's what we prefer. As Martin Luther King Jr. said about Sunday mornings that they were the most segregated times of the week. And it's not just racially. We are segregating in so many different ways. But again, let me just emphasize, this is not what Jesus prayed for, for his church. This is not his plan for his followers. For in John 17, when he prays for his disciples, and this time right before his death, his prayer 
is that they may be one. If you have your Bibles open, just refer to John 17, verse 11. Jesus prays, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. When Jesus selected these 12 disciples who is praying for, this first part of the prayer is just for those disciples that were with him. Later he'll pray for us. He selected these disciples who were quite different from each other. He gathered women who were diverse from different spectrums of society. And I imagine as they interacted with each other, Jesus was the glue that held them, this unlikely gang, together. And at this point, when he was preparing to leave them, he prayed for them. Make them one. But in this prayer, he prays for protection so that they may be one. And and when you first look at that prayer, protection, that makes sense knowing the context where Jesus is. He's, He's about to be arrested. He's about to be whipped just to an inch of killing him. And then, then they put him on the cross and finish the job. So that is somewhat in his mind. And, and I think the disciples have been prepared that this might be coming. And so that was in their mind when they're hearing Jesus say, protect them. But as you look at this prayer, the protection was not from the soldiers. It was not from the Jewish leaders. It was not from outside. He's saying, protect them from division. Protect them from within so that they may be one. For together these disciples could withstand any assault from the outside. Eventually they all faced persecution, death. But they remained faithful. That was not the biggest threat to them. I'm not sure we realize how harmful God views Christians fighting against one another. We lose sight of who our enemy is. And there's several places in the Gospels where Jesus says, don't go to, 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 to court against your brother and don't you know, gossip against each other. And there's, there's different ways which, sort of on a subtle way in which he is saying things that we should not do, but that the main thing is we are to remain one. Paul wrote that we often mistake the enemy as each other or even other people who aren't believers. And he says that's simply not the case. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 12. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is is correcting us that that it's not humans, it's not the flesh and blood that we are fighting against. There are no people that are our enemies. As the church, Satan is our enemy, and Satan is working hard to divide us. 
Peter describes the devil as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. And when I picture that, when I hear that description, I picture lions sort of sitting in, in wait in these savannas looking for a herd of gazelles or something to, to capture. They're, they're looking for a meal. But when the herd stays together, they are just powerless. The herd sort of fends off the lions, but they chase them and they maneuver them so that the weak or the young or the old will fall away from the herd. And then once that one has fallen away, they become vulnerable. They become easy to attack. Satan is doing that to Christ's church. If we, it is when we pull away from our base, it's when we pull away from the herd that Satan sees the opportunity and he attacks. This year we've heard a lot about Facebook and other social media and particularly how Russians have been sort of on the using this to affect our elections or to affect other types of division in our country. It's interesting, you may have read this, but they they found out that in May of 2016, so this is uh, two and a half years ago, the Russians developed Facebook groups. And now that they've studied it, they said this came out of the same house, I believe it was in St. Petersburg, Russia, that same IP address was developing a Facebook group, one of them which was called the Heart of Texas. Now, it was a group that was promoting Texas secession. They, they, they put memes and other you know, articles out that would really appeal to those in Texas that, that wanted guns, that wanted barbecue, that wanted beer, that wanted you know, secede from the union, all, all this you know, good old boy in Texas. They just were like eating this up. And so they amassed over 100,000 followers on this group, the heart of Texas. From the same house, another Facebook group was was started that was called the, the United Muslims of America. And as they promoted the, the, the teachings of Islam and how it was a peaceful religion and they needed to save Islamic knowledge, and they, they quickly had tens of thousands of followers that were following their Facebook page, United Muslims of America, and, and these Russians were looking back and saying, how can we use this? And they created an event. The heart of Texas was to have a rally in front of the Islamic Center in Texas. There was some debate going on about the public funds going to the library there. And so they created a rally to protest that. And on the same day, at the same hour, they had this United Muslim America had a rally in the same park. And I can just see them back there thinking, oh, what's going to happen? It's a picture, I think, of how Satan tries to get in the church. Little things that we just somehow, through our weakness or through our prejudices, sort of pick up on, and we want, to, we want to believe it, we want to engage in that, and Satan just uses that. And then eventually, before we even realize it, we realize we've been, we've been played. We've been pitted against one another. And if our earthly adversaries have figured out that to divide us weakens us, I'm sure that the devil is working even more, even more sinister ways to divide the church. This is why Jesus prayed, 
God, protect these disciples by the power of your name that they may be one. Now, what does it mean to be one? What does that look like in our world? Two things that we see from the text. Number one, Jesus connects the the unity that, that we're to have with the unity that he has with the Trinity, with the Father, and implied with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Trinity is perfectly united, though it's three distinct persons. It's sort of hard to say, well, this is what we're to be like, because we, we still have so much about the Trinity we don't understand. But from what we do understand, we, we benefit from the unique ways in which each person of the Trinity interacts with believers. Is a richer faith that we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even though they are one, and we worship one God, they're all working together in unity and purpose, never against one another. That's the, the uniqueness among the, the Christian understanding of the Trinity from what, what other religions that have multiple gods are, is those, those gods will fight against each other, and they'll attack each other, and they'll undermine each other. The unity of the Holy Father, the Son, and the Spirit is what's unique about the Holy Trinity. And so in some way, the church, though we are all different, we are made in different ways, and and even as believers, we have received different spiritual gifts. They They are all given separately so that the body may work together as a unit. And it's better that we are different than if every one of us were identical. The church is more effective Because of our differences. And so Jesus is saying, as as the Holy Trinity is one, as he and the Father are one, so the church should be one. Another way in which you can look at this from the context is is that that being one is contrasted. It's the opposite from falling away. Here in John 17 is where this passage is. Just look back to John 16, verse 1. Jesus said, all this... I have told you so that you will not fall away. Go back a chapter before that, chapter 15, and he's talking about the vine and the branches here. And he, he has this picture. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That unity is so tied with the connection to Christ. I think one of the things that we see from this passage is that that our unity, or even our lack of unity as a church, is not the primary issue. That is a symptom of not being united with Christ. And the, the closer we become to Christ, the more united we will be as his church. But look in this passage. Jesus not only speaks about him being in us, but us being and remaining in him. Now, you get those two different word pictures Subtle differences, but I think it's important. For it is both of these concepts together 
If we only think about Jesus being in us, and think of when you first heard the gospel, maybe if you heard it as a child, it was probably simplified to something like this. You invite Jesus to come into your heart. And we we sort of, as a child, you sort of think of that in a concrete way and say, how does this big man fit in my little heart? And, And we have that confusion. But there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit comes in us when we believe, when we have that faith in Jesus Christ. But if that's all we think about, then it's possible for us to go and take this, be little Jesus is with me, and Jesus is also with you, but we go our separate ways. And then we get to the point in which we have a, a special passion, maybe coming, coming from the way we are made or the gifts that we have, and then that Jesus sort of takes that slant with it. So I am now a social justice Jesus. Or Jesus is with me, that Jesus. And others may have an evangelism Jesus or a mercy Jesus or whatever the, the slant that we have been made to have, but we have now taken them in different ways to different positions. And then we look at culture, we look at politics, we look at so many different issues, and we come at each other from the outside. But if we look at Jesus as being in us and we are in him both, then you cannot be in Jesus without also being intricately connected with everyone else who is in Jesus. Word picture, I don't have it to just imagine. A jar full of water. And, And then you take a sponge... And you put the sponge in the jar. So in this sense, the sponge is in the water, but the water is also in the sponge. But it's so intricately connected, you cannot separate them. And if you try to separate them, it it no longer is unified. In the church, you cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ without also being one with all others who believe in Jesus. And so when Jesus calls us to be one, it's not just a shallow, you know, let's be kind to each other, let's not, let's not fight, let's not kill each other. I think it's much more connected to understanding who Jesus is in my life. And somehow, I'm not just affected by Jesus, I am connected to Jesus such that you cannot remove him without changing who I am. So if that understanding of unity is sort of laid out there as our challenge, as as Jesus' prayer for us, how can we be one? What is it that the church needs to do? Again, prayer is such a key to this. It's not something we do, but by praying we let God do this in us. The first thing is that we commit to the body of Christ. Commit to being a part of the church. Now, it's not because the church is perfect. It's not. It never will be. Every person on earth, every person in this church is struggling with some issues. And and if we were completely transparent, we'd be surprised at what the issues of the person sitting in front of us are. We, we don't see that, but we're all struggling. You know it about yourself, you just don't know that about the person beside you. 
But we do understand that God intends for us to work through these issues together. That's the best way that we can deal with them is to to somehow be in a community that will love each other through that, that will support each other, hold each other accountable, and, and pray for each other. And it's only together that we have hope of working through these. If you think of a marriage, the husband and wife are similarly said to be of one flesh. So that, that oneness is described of the, that marriage union between a husband and wife. And in the unity and the healthy marriage, we find that safe environment in which a person can, love how, can, can learn how to love someone that is quite different from them and someone who, whose issues are increasingly becoming obvious to you. There were two different people who connected. There are two different people who connect for life. And you have to work through these issues together, but in a way that is bound together so that they will learn to put up with weakness and faults and not just leave when it becomes difficult. They are called and bound to learn to love unconditionally. In a similar way, I think the church is that type of Laboratory for learning to love people who think differently, who act differently, who, who are quite different, but yet are one with Christ. The church must be this environment where people of different ages can come together, different ethnic backgrounds, different uh, political views, whatever it would be that would tempt us to separate, whatever it be that would pull us apart Or say, well, I think I'll just hang out with people like me. And Christ pushes us into this community with those that are different. We work through these issues to help each other in the process. But it takes that commitment to the body. For the churches to have the effect we need, for have this effect on us, we need to be committed. And not just leaving when it gets tough. Otherwise, we get offended. We stop showing grace. We hold a grudge. The coffee makes us to go away. We withhold forgiveness. And before you know it, we have broken fellowship. The devil knows that that is when we're vulnerable. But when there is commitment, we make ourselves, we make ourselves work through the conflict. We forgive. We work together. So that the body of believers can build each other up and together work to accomplish this mission of making disciples in and among all peoples. An even more important key to becoming one involves your relationship with God. We must learn to become one or become intimately connected with God. There are many reasons why this would be a good idea and But how this can help us to be one is the one I want to focus on. The more time you spend with God, whether it's praying, reading the word of God, worshiping together as the body, the more time you're spending with him, the greater your faith will be. It's almost like the more you're away from him, the more you start to think like the world and the more doubts come in and the more of a whole different worldview becomes to overwhelm you, your, your, your perspective on life. But the more you spend time with God, the greater faith will be. 
and the more confident you'll be that God, God's power will help you to work through whatever issues you're dealing with. It may be financial issues, it may be job insecurity, it may be any of these other issues. It may be coming up, it may be relationship, it may be physical illness. But the greater your faith that God will take care of you, the less you will be afraid. So the person who is abiding in Christ, the person who is intimately connected with Christ, is able to live with a confidence that whatever happens, God is at work and he'll take care of me. There's that peace that comes from that. There's no worry. There's no anxiety. Therefore, there's no fear. Scripture talks about perfect love casting out fear. I know that that's hard to to fully grasp, but I, I do see that that affects people and it changes so that there is significantly less fear than before. And fear is often at the root of our divisions. I've seen this in churches. I've seen this in our political environment. We fear those who are different from us. So we want to hold them at arm's length. We fear that we'll be left out. We we fear that our family will not be safe. We fear that which we do not know. And it's not a great leap to jump from fear to hate. The devil actually can push that fairly quickly in our lives. But when we realize that we are deeply loved by God, we are able to give love to those who need it. Because we have been forgiven, we are able to forgive others. The closer you are to Christ, the more united you will be with people that are very, very different from you. Before we close, let me make one final point from this scripture because Jesus' prayer continues beyond that. And we read that last part in verse 20. So John 17, verse 20 through 23, he talks about how this will affect the church's mission. John 17, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's really praying for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that you, they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When the, when the church lives as one, Jesus is saying that those outside the church will be drawn to Jesus. Our unity, despite our differences, will be noticed by those in the world. For our society is yearning for this kind of community. Our, our, our society Though they don't know how to get out of it, they're sick of the divisiveness. They're sick. Both sides are sick of the government shutdown. They just have no idea how to get through it. What if the church could present that kind of image of how people that think radically different from each other can love each other, show kindness, and, and really be united in a way that they, they can only admire from a distance and say, what is going on with them? 
it will lead them to Jesus. Even though this does not happen naturally, this must be how the church operates. Putting aside our prejudices, our ideologies, we take the name Christian. As Paul wrote in Colossians, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, may you protect us when Satan divides us, lures us into arguments that are unhealthy, and causes us to fear. May we spend that time with you being bathed in your word so that this perspective, this worldview will permeate our our thoughts. May your forgiveness lead us to forgive. May your love lead us to love. And may we demonstrate that in, in the body of the church so that others will be drawn to you and the church can truly live as one. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.